Lord, we do come before You now and thanking You for Your goodness and grace, for Your loving kindness. Lord, we thank You that You have gathered us here this morning that we might worship You aright. And we thank You, Lord, that You do not leave us to our own imaginations, but rather, Lord, You have given us Your Word. So, Lord, we ask that You would use it this morning, that You would delight to once again speak to us Your words of truth, Your words of hope, Your words of conviction, Your words which lead us into life eternal. Lord, would You be gracious Would you use your servant this morning to minister to your flock? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles then to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. You'll remember back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul reminded us that he was a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, and he now comes to make that statement again and follow through with the thoughts that he possibly had begun to have as he seemed distracted, as it were, from his original intent in chapter 3 and laid out some very key and important things that we needed to see and hear before we heard these words of chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, for those of you that have been around me a while, you know every time we get to that therefore, you have to ask the question, right? What's the therefore, therefore? We have to ask that. Paul leads us to a place in his writings where he draws us to understand these great doctrinal truths of Christ and what He has done, what the triune God has been about. And Paul has done that for three chapters. And that's not to say that there was nothing ethical or moral being discussed there, but rather that Paul's emphasis for the first three chapters has been that we come to a place of understanding what God has done for His people. And really what the essence of that is, is that God has done everything and wrapped up all things in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that is necessary has happened in Christ. Now I want you to think about that because that's important. That is the distinctive of biblical Christianity over against any of its derivatives. And that is this, that there is absolutely nothing that human beings previous to salvation or post-salvation, as it were, being out of the kingdom of darkness or in the kingdom of darkness, they bring nothing to the table that earns them favor with God. Ever. That is a hallmark of biblical Christianity. But what is also a hallmark of biblical Christianity is is that the reality that God has worked in us because of Christ by the Spirit cannot be left as saying, I'm sure glad I know that Jesus loves me, and then off I run to do things the way I've always done. 
that is inconsistent. If God has changed us and is in the business of changing us, then those changes will be and must be evident in the life of the believer. And so Paul now draws us and begins to urge us, as it were, to consider that we have been given a high calling. We have a secure destiny so that we are called to live lives in keeping with that calling. P.T. O'Brien says, as he discusses our behavior in view of, in light of what Christ has done here in Ephesians, says this, behavior is thus seen in Ephesians as both response to what God has done in Christ and as the proper accompaniment to the praise of God. One might say this, it is the reality of the witness of God's people that Christ is among them in their actions and a better and more informed praise and worship of His name. We almost could say that what we see here in Ephesians is this notion of love for God because of what He has done being realized in love of neighbor because of what He has done. Those two commands then are dependent completely and totally upon God's provision for us and to us. But we are not left to sit around and do nothing. We're rather called. And this is the thing I want you to begin to think about. If you go back to the garden prior to the fall, Adam was called to work. Adam was called to do things, to be active And the reality is that what the fall did was to take all his work and make it for nothing. Now as Christ has come, he begins to once again call us into fruitful lives that begin to be realized even now as we look to the great fruit that awaits us in heaven. I want to look at three points this morning. All of them relate to the unity we have in the Spirit. The first one is the unity of your calling. The second is the unity of your character. And the third is the unity of your concern. So here's the first one, the unity of your calling. In this passage, we see Paul offering to us a corrective to the attempt that is often seen in Christianity to split hairs on man's responsibility in growing in holiness and what the triune God has done for us to accomplish everything necessary for our complete salvation. To me, I find it almost tedious to listen to all the debates over the last 10 years over where man's responsibility and God's salvation completeness fit. The bottom line is they're both taught in the New Testament. And the reality is is that the sufficiency of God to see His people through number five of the tulip, perseverance of the saints, is a reality that seems to be just dropped off of much of this discussion. Well, you've got to make sure you're doing. And what I want to say is, is that we need to bask in what God is doing in us and live according to it. Why do we see these things as enemies? I think about Spurgeon when he talked about free will and the providence of God or, or predestination. He says, people said, how do you reconcile that? And he said, I don't have to reconcile friends. See, the point is, is that our behavior as God's people is a demonstration of God's work in us. They're not at odds. They're not enemies. They're fast friends. But we always need to be careful that we don't assume one begets the other. Good behavior does not beget a proof that you're a Christian. Proof that you're a Christian is a reality seen in good behavior. 
That's, that's where it mounts. God has to save you, and because He has, it will be seen in your attitude and your actions. And what I want us to notice then as we look at this calling is, is that Paul is saying then this. Think about who you were. That's what he spent all of chapter 2 talking about. Think about who you were. You were a helpless people. You were a hopeless people. You were cut off and separated. You had no claim to health. And you had no hope in being part of the people of God. That's who you were. And if you begin to think about that and realize that's who you were, and we take seriously what Jesus says about the human heart, namely this, out of it come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. If you really realize that apart from Christ, that's you. That's me. See, if you really start to hear that, then you start to realize the incredible, almost insane comment that Paul says, I urge you now to change your behavior. See, if this is not a work of God, it ain't going to happen. Human beings are incredibly adept at behavior modification. We do it all the time. New boss comes in, or old boss comes in and decides to do something new and different. What do most people do? Well, if they want to stay employed, they adjust. And they do it all the time. It happens all the time. That does not mean that your attitude and your heart is one that says, I love my boss. You can maintain an attitude which says, I can't stand this person, but you can modify your behavior to adapt to the situation. God is not calling for behavior modification. He is not calling for you to adapt to your circumstances. He is saying, you must be transformed. You cannot maintain just a mere change of behavior and think that somehow that pleases me. Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance, does He? God looks on the heart. And so what we see then that Paul is saying to us is, you need to realize what you really are like apart from Christ. You need to see that this is what you're up against in your own lives. This is you. Don't ever convince yourself that's not you. That is a part of who you are. You are a liar. You are a thief. If you were left to yourselves, you would not do honorable things for the Lord. And the only reason why you do honorable things for the Lord is because He has united you to Himself in the person and work of Christ and poured out His Spirit into your heart who is changing and transforming you. It is all of God. Never lose sight of that. Never think... Boy, I'm really on my way marching to Zion. Look at me. It's not about you. It's about the greatness of God in you and in our midst. See, that then gives us a thankful attitude that when we look around this room and we see people actually doing what God calls them to do in any measure, that's reason to give thanks. 
See, that's what I'm really trying to say. In so many churches, we take for granted these these ideas of what people should do and people are capable of doing those things so that you'll leave them alone. So that you don't bother them. So that they might feel better about themselves. So that they might think they're okay with God. Because they're afraid if they don't do these things that their children won't turn out. I mean, there's a thousand reasons why people are motivated to various actions. But the reality is is that what we need to see is that when someone's attitude drives them to say, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, that is a moment to stop and say, a reality of heaven just took place in our midst. Now I want to tell you guys something. You may not know this, but you might as well know it if you don't already know it. The session doesn't always agree with one another. The elders don't always see it the exact same way all the time. And sometimes we don't see it the exact same way in pretty strong ways. (laughs) And sometimes we say it in pretty strong ways. And sometimes we get our feelings hurt because we're wrestling out. What does God want us to do in this midst? And we take it seriously. But guess what happens? As we work through those things and as we come to terms with one another, the beauty and the reality of our growing closer together and knitting together over the last year and a half, it's been phenomenal. We've had our moments that have been really difficult, but we also have had moments even recently that have just been amazing. See, I don't just step back and go, oh, this, of course, you know, we're mature, godly men, and this is what mature, godly men do. They work out their issues and they come to terms, and then they pour forth righteousness onto the congregation for their benefit. No, we're sinful men. And our pride and our arrogance and our frustrations and our own desires oftentimes cloud us just as much, and that's why we need you to pray for us all the time. But the reality is, is when those things come together, what do we see? We're able to rejoice and say, do you see God's goodness in our midst? That what could lead to division has actually moved us towards greater trust in God, towards a deeper desire to obey Him, to a greater union together? And if you doubt me, if you doubt what I'm saying or don't think that's true, just talk to Bruce or Marty or Dick. Or Stu, who who sits there and and gets to bask. He doesn't have to take the responsibilities anymore. (laughs) He just basks in the glory that is the the session meeting. (laughs) See, I want you to begin to grab hold and say that when one of your children says something like, I was really convicted, Mommy, about this. Don't see that as some, well, of course, you're a covenant child and you were raised in a covenant home. And of course, that is is a gracious act of a gracious, loving Heavenly Father who doesn't owe you a thing. We ought not be presumptuous on the promises of God. We should revel in them. Which also means we should not be lax about His promises, but should rather throw ourselves fully into the engagement of seeing those realities flourishing in our own lives and in our children's lives and in unbelievers around us lives. See, it becomes a motivation for mission. If we see that, then we begin to look at the beauty of Christ and we see, wow, there really is salvation. 
There really is somebody who's able to answer life's biggest, strongest, hard-hitting issues, no matter what they are. See, it's our failure to do that often that leaves people as they walk out the back door of this church in despair. Because they're saying, I, I hear what the preacher's saying, but where's the reality of it in the midst? Jesus lived and died and was raised for us, and now He says, obey Me. I've done all these things necessary for you, now follow Me. The reality is, is that by the Spirit, He has provided everything we need, as I've said before, for life and godliness. The union life we share in Christ is ours because of the Holy Spirit's continuing to communicate it to us. Paul wanted his listeners and us not only to hear the Gospel, but to manifest it by walking in a worthy manner. Thus he says, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling to which you have been called. You remember back over in chapter 1, we're told we're called. We're called out of this life into a new life, which is found in Christ. And so we need to pursue that. We need to realize that we have a unity. And see, here's the thing I want you to see before I jump to that next part of our character. I want you to see that what Paul is really saying is, and it's too bad that we, we don't have Southerners, good Southerners, translating the Bibles, because what it ought to say is, y'all. See, that's what it's really saying. I urge you all, y'all, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. This isn't just about you. It's not about your own personal walk. It's about us. See, we need one another. We need to see one another. And the reality is, is that there's a unity of our calling. God didn't call just John. Adams. He called Bruce Ferg. And he called Jackie and Jack Satterfield. And see, you begin to look at, he called all these, all of us into this group. And he calls all of us, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You all do that. Because see, if you're not unified in that, what happens? It begins to become hard. And sometimes, men and women, is it possible that maybe in this church's life, people have found it hard to walk in a manner worthy because we've not seen ourselves unified in the calling to which we've been called. We haven't seen it as necessary to unite, to, to maintain, as we'll see in chapter 3, the unity to which we've been called. We're so busy wrestling with our own rights and our own way of doing things, and we're so angry about ourselves not being done right that we forget that it's not about us. It's about Christ. We're here to show forth Him. That's what we're here for. That's what it's supposed to be about. Not about me and my ways and my rights. But about His calling on us and captivating us as His own people. Why should we do this? Why should there be a unity? So that God will be honored and human beings lost in sin going to hell might be saved. The second thing that I want us to look at, we see there in verse 2, is the unity of your character. Maybe I should say the unity of our character might be a better way to, to look at it. But here, here's the point. He says that we're supposed to walk in a manner worthy. How? With all humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. 
As we consider what Paul has told us, we see that he is focusing on the character of the new humanity over the structure of the ministry. And that's important. John Stott says this. He says, while structure is important, too many people start here rather than with the character of people. And I think too often in churches, and I would even say, I'll be even so bold to say that even some of the struggles we've had recently in this church's life have been too much about structure and not enough about character. Who are we as God's people? That determines a whole lot of how we deal with structures which come and go. The church has a simple structure. Jesus is the head, elders and deacons. Everything else is kind of the rest of us trying to put it together. That's the structure. That's it. It's that simple. And the reality is that what Paul says is what really matters, if you're going to get any of that other stuff right, you need to evaluate the character of your soul. Who are you? Because who you are will determine what you do and the reason why you do it. And so he begins to then unpack how, how will we walk in a worthy manner and how will we ultimately reach and attain the unity of the Spirit? How will we maintain that? He begins to unpack it with these five graces that should adorn our character as the new humanity. And we're also found in our Savior Jesus. I remember a song, and I'll go ahead and apologize on the front end. If I offend anybody by this song, I apologize. But this is a song I can remember from my younger, early teen days, and it was a song called, Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble. And it went something like this, the chorus, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I must be a heck of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. Now you laugh about that, but here's the tragedy of Christians. We would deny what that guy said. But if we're really honest with ourselves, there's part of that song in every single one of us. And if it's not true of us, we're angry because it's not. If we're not getting better looking each day, we're upset. That's the reality. And so what we begin to come into to focus here is, is that humility, which kind of becomes that big thing that all the rest of these things begin to flow out of and, and from undergirded by love. That's kind of how Paul has rooted this. Humility becomes essential. You will not be a part of the new humanity. You cannot live as God's people and not be growing in humility. It is impossible. So what is humility? It is an awareness that we are dependent, finite creatures, and have nothing that we have not received from a wondrous Creator and a glorious Savior. And those words are just, we hear them so much that we just almost let that just roll off our back. But men and women think about it. Your health, who gave it to you? Your brain, who gave it to you? Who, who gives you favor in the eyes of your employers? Who provides your companies with contracts or whatever else they need to stay employed? Who gives you spouses that tolerate you and don't walk out the door? Who gives you children that in general follow your instructions? 
They're not out destroying the neighborhood. I just want you to begin to unpack all the things in your I don't care how small you want to go, your hands work. Your eyes see. See, you need to realize that none of this is apart from a gracious creator. And that if you use any of it to help the kingdom of God advance, it is only because He has saved you and enabled you to do so. You are needy people. Every single one of you. You need God. I don't mean needy in the sense of you don't, you know, you're, you're this sniveling little person in the corner that's needy. I just mean you need somebody outside of yourself. Adam, in his perfection, needed God. He had to have God. Not just to provide the world he lived in, but to uphold it and sustain it. He needed the fellowship that only God could provide him. And see, we often forget that we need God and what He brings to us. We need each other. Because God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And yet many of us have bought in to the Wild West view of frontierism. Yeah, it's good to go to church, and it's good to see these people, but we're not going to get too close. That's scary. And what I want to say to you is, in some ways, that's a lack of humility. Because you assume that you don't need other people. That's not trusting in God, because God says you do need them. And He's provided them to you. It's actually being selfish and self-centered. And Scripture clearly says that that is not the way we ought to be. Humility is not a low self-image, but rather a deep desire to follow the Lord's leading through the Lord's ordained means. Wow, that's a mouthful. Humility is a deep desire to follow the Lord's leading through the Lord's ordained means. And you know what that means, folks? That means that you guys actually are called to listen to the elders, even when you don't like what they're saying, even when you can't stand the direction they're taking you because you made vows that said, I will submit. And when you were spouses, you actually said, I will submit and I will love. Think about all the things, the behavioral implications of saying I'm a gospel person. And as elders, just so you know that we don't get out of it, we have to go to Presbytery. And sometimes the Presbytery or our General Assembly votes in ways that we just go, what, what was that? But you know what we're called? We take vows and say, we will maintain the peace, unity, and purity of this church with God's help. And sometimes what we have to believe is that God working through those ordained means will achieve His ends, even when we can't see it. Even when it's personally frustrating and cost us. See, at the heart of humility is submission. We don't like that. It's a willingness to say, God, I will do it your way and your timing through your means. Now I want you to think about this as we think about humility. All of us like people who like us and value us the way we want to be liked and valued. We like those kind of people. They're our kind of people. Why? Because they treat us on the terms that we think we deserve to be treated. Let's go back to step one. You deserve hell. That's step one. So how does that then make you deserve to be treated? 
Anything less than condemnation and hell is better than you deserve. That doesn't mean as Christians we ought to treat each other like that's not my point. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, is that, see, the attitude in ourselves is, is that we get angry because we're not being treated the way we think we ought to be treated. How do you know you're right? How do you know that's how you ought to be treated? And aren't you in some way saying, God, you don't know what the hell you're doing when you let people treat me like that. So that you're really mad at God. And that's really what's eating the crud out of you. Men and women, it's true of your pastor and it's true of you. Pride is like a cobra that lies dormant as long as people are treating you the way you want to be treated. But get crosshairs with somebody and that cobra rises up and it's ready to strike. It is a hateful disease that plagues all of us. And therefore, Paul says, you need to be vigilant to see that humility is growing in you. That doesn't mean we take on the onerous of saying, I'm the person who's here to help you be humble, so I belittle you at every turn. Wouldn't want you thinking too lofty of yourself. It's rather a deep concern that says, do you see the Savior? Do you see the Savior weak and wounded in this life for you? And do you see what He has done for us and what He is doing in us? Do you see Him triumphing in our midst? Do you see His glory pervading all around us? Do you see yourself doing things that five years ago you would have never done, but now you are because God by His grace is growing you in faith despite yourselves, despite myself. He's deepening certain convictions and He's enabling you to see the fruit of the Spirit growing in you of which all these things here, humility, gentleness, all those things are rooted in the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians chapter 5. Humility confronts us with the reality that all, with the whole idea that we have a dissatisfaction with God. And if we don't get that right, if we don't see our satisfaction in God, we're really not humble people. That means that whatever our life circumstances are, we are grateful for God's provision. Now I want you to think about this. Whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in, we humbly are grateful for God's provision. For our leaders, for our congregation, for our jobs, for our spouses, for our children for our neighbors. See, humility says, Lord, thank you for putting me in the situation you knew I needed to be in. Because what you want is my Christ-likeness. Because that ultimately brings you glory and me happiness. The second thing he then brings us to is gentleness. A growing humility leads people who desire to see others with the eyes of the Savior. Meekness or gentleness is not a sign of weakness, but rather strength of personality under control. Now, folks, you ought to know this. Um, hello, pretty strong personality. Some of you have them too. Guess what? We're not called to be weak. Jesus wasn't weak. Think about it. 
Jesus said, no, we're not going that way. We're going this way and I won't be deterred. You're, no, Peter, I'm going to the cross. No, Satan, I'm, not, I'm going here. I am determined. My face is set like flint to where God has called me. But the manner in which he went there was one that made the people glad. Now then, what's the task? The task is to constantly come back and say, humility leads me to gentleness. It's not a becoming weak in character or strength. It's rather having that under control. It's kind of like water behind a dam. So that's controlled power. It can light up a whole city. That's what ultimately gentleness looks like. Patience then, we see, comes out of this. Why? Because guess what? None of us, as we look around this room, are always humble, nor are we always gentle. And so what does that require in us? A great measure of patience with one another as God transforms us. Because some of us can be really irritating to one another. It's just true. Patience is seen as long-temperedness with aggravating people. I, do, I strive to not lose my temper with people who are really annoying. That's really what it amounts to with patience. God has been and is patient with human beings broadly and with us and our failings and struggles individually. You all know where you struggle and fail. And is God patient with you? Did you say, that's it. The blood only covered that far. To hell you go. Oh. He is long-tempered with people generally because look for all the thousands of years that He has borne with sinners. And He specifically is gracious with us as individuals. Long-suffering, slowly growing us in the faith. We are called to this life as well. We do not put out smoking flax in our midst. Do you know what that person has done? Yes. Do you know what God has done for them? We do not break off bruised reeds. Did you hear what she did the other day? Yes. Do you know what she said? Do you see her attitude? Yes. Did the Savior break you off when you showed that attitude five years ago? Ten years ago? Patience. Patience. Vigilant. Unswerving. Unswaying. Uncompromising. Patience. That's what God calls us to. Which then leads us to apply the salve of the Gospel into wounded people. Because most of the time, folks, when people are doing things, it's because they're hurting in pain, there's a reason for it. We need to get to the root, not just get all upset because we don't see bright, shiny apples to use what we've been, for those of you that have been here on Wednesday evenings, on the tree. Forbearance, this is the quality of which we have mutual toleration with one another. It's necessary in order for us to grow together. We have to forbear one another. We have to realize we're going to do things that hurt one another's feelings. And at some point, you've got to say, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to forgive. And I'm going to continue to move forward. I'm going to continue to strive for what God's called me to strive for. And all of this is undergirded with love. 
undergirding grace which enables all the others to flourish. And it is this that Paul has already prayed for, that God would root and ground us in so that we would have a deep care for one another's welfare, thus reflecting the unity he prayed in John 17. Listen to what he said. I do not ask for these only, namely his apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You hear what it was? The whole reason Jesus has done all this is so that the world might know. So that other people might come to faith in Jesus Christ and those who don't will be left condemned because they saw the reality of the oneness of the church and they rejected it wholesale. We are to be a beacon of oneness. Which then brings us to the third point, the unity of our or your concern. Without these graces, the unity of God's people would not be realized. The beauty of this section is that the new humanity is not left to be indifferent towards their salvation, but rather called to take responsibility. However, neither is the outcome left to human responsibility. The ultimate outcome is realized in the person and work of Christ. Thus, Paul says, maintain what you have. Look at what he says in verse 3. Eager to maintain. Not eager to get. Not eager to attain to. Eager to maintain what you already have. Do you see it? I can't make this up, people. You look at your Bibles and see. Eager to maintain. What does the word maintain mean? It means to maintain something that's already in existence. We are united together. We're either maintaining it or we're destroying what we are. So the unity of our concern then says, I need to be someone who is deeply concerned with the church that I belong to being a place of unity. And guess where that starts? With them, right? No, it starts with me. I have seen the enemy and it lives right here. I'm the problem. And I need to start with me so that we will maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit. It needs to become the compelling concern of each one of us. We maintain it through the bond of peace which is ours in Christ and because of Christ. Thus, we are called to show forth peace with one another as a reflection of the peace that we have with God. So here's the point. I'm going to be so bold to say this. If you're having real issues with people in this church, starting with me and going on down the line, maybe the place to start is to ask yourself, am I at peace really with God? What's really going on in my heart? Because see, that's where I have to start. If there's anybody in this congregation that I don't feel unified or at peace with, guess where I have to start? Not trying to get you fixed. Not trying to figure out, okay, what could I possibly say or do that would win you over? I have to start with me. I have to figure out what, as the psalmist said, Lord, if there be any wicked way in me, start with me. 
Find it out. Flesh it out. Root it out. Isn't that interesting? And men and women, most of the time, we spend our time trying to figure out how to solve everybody else's sin problems but our own. And therefore, it shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't shock us that we don't maintain the unity of the Spirit. And it shouldn't shock us that people don't want to often be in the presence of people who aren't maintaining unity. That's just the truth. And see, that's hard for us because we want to be solid in so many ways. But see, here's the point. You could have all the right doctrine and be an absolute jerk of a human being and not be maintaining the unity which we have in Christ. I want to have both, but let me just tell you something. I'd rather this church be a bunch of people that are unified together over simple truths like Jesus loves me, this I know than to be a church that knows all the doctrines and all the debates that are going on in the church, in the Reformed community and abroad, and not be unified. Reformed people are notorious for splitting and bickering. Let that not be the case of Desert Springs. Let us be a place where we strive with all our hearts, with the graces that God is working in us, humility, gentleness, forbearance, patience and love to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace which is ours in Christ. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.